0: Welcome to It's Bloody Complicated, the Compass podcast. I'm Neil Lawson, your host and director of Compass. Joining me to help manage the questions is Grace Barnett from the Compass office. Hello, Grace. Hello. These are unprecedented times, and we need to rise to the new and enormous challenges we now face. Over the next few weeks, we'll be speaking with writers, thinkers, politicians, journalists, and public service workers about how we come out of this mess in much better shape than we went in a good society after Covid-19. These conversations have live access for Compass members who can put their own questions directly to our guests. If you'd like to participate in a live call and help support all of our work, go to compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast to join Compass today. Otherwise, sit back, relax and enjoy this week's podcast. The virus impacts on everyone, but it impacts on them differently. Joining us this week to discuss the crisis and how we build back better from it is Sue Goss. Sue has been bound up in Compass Politics from the world where go, as a member, as an associate, serving on the old management committee, and now as co-chair of the council. She has spent a life thinking about public services and place-based reforms. She's worked for the Labour Party, was chair of something called the Labour Coordinating Committee, which we'll hear about more from Sue, and she was also chair of the Charteration council. She knows where all the bodies and all the ideas are buried. <laughs> more recently she's been a prolific writer and thinker for Compass and we'll come on to more of that. The format as ever will be I'll ask our guests a few questions and open it up to you Compass members on the call for questions and comments before we finish on the hour. So Sue Goss welcome to the call tonight tell us where you are and how you are.
1: I'm uh, in Kent I'm in the High world. Um, I'm I'm great. Um I'm I'm spending a lot of time in my lovely garden. It's just a shame so few people can see it.
0: No, you you were gonna take us on a tour, but you said it was raining. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> which is a uh, which is a shame. Which is so good though. We
1: well, it's good for the garden, right? You know, it, I'm right. sure
0: it is, I'm sure it is. Um, so, uh, the, the, the our usual way into this is tell us about your political life, but we've set you a sort of higher bar because we expect more from you. And the higher bar is because you've been so inextricably linked to Compass and were in my vernacular, Compass, before Compass existed, kind of try and weave to the story of Compass about where it came from because it's so in your life and your political life. So talk us through that so
1: i guess as a teenager i was involved in anti-apartheid and stuff where you could do stunts and agitprop and theater and um and community politics uh went to sussex and got involved in student politics uh, moved from there to south east london got a job with a homelessness charity um and i think in in the 70s you know those of us in community politics were a bit sort of contemptuous of party politics and then mrs thatcher swept to power and it became important to think about government and what governments could do both in terms of good and harm so i joined the labor party um and I just remember my first meeting was in somebody's front room with six old ladies and one old gentleman who'd been there for donkey's years and hadn't changed anything for 30 years. And I was part of a movement that swept in. Neil, you were too, I think, in 79. In uh, Ken Livingstone was getting organised at the GLC. Feminism and anti-racism and disability rights were being brought into the party for the first time. And we felt like we were waking the Labour Party up. Um, I became a councillor in Southwark in 1982, chaired the first women's committee, and then I, that's when I got involved with the Labour Coordinating Committee, uh, and with the glorious Paul Thompson, um, who I still think is one of the greatest thinkers of of my lifetime, um, and started to create the soft left, the idea of there being a soft left, which you know, wasn't as aggressive without the sort of clinical Marxist newspeak um, that the hard left had seemed to have, but with a radicalism that embraced things like feminism and anti-racism and gay rights and trying to think about how humans would thrive rather than just about the economy.
0: So So just unpack that for people, because the Labour Coordinating Committee was a kind of yeah, a, founda- a big foundational step on the road to Compass, wasn't it?
1: It was. And we were trying to create a sort of left politics that, that had a humanism to it. I mean, Robin Cook, for me, um, uh, embodied uh, the LCC. He was my hero. Um, I still miss him. Mm. Um, but that capacity to think deeply about history and about politics and about you know the structural changes but without losing humour, love, kindness, poetry and a sense of how life could be better.
0: And Robin was you know uh, egalitarian, democratic and green and he got all of it didn't he? He got the, the connections between all of it didn't he?
1: And he opposed the Iraq
0: war. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, I helped him, I, my, one of my little claims to fame is uh, helping him write his uh, resignation speech. Um, oh, well done. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. And, and and then, you know, you've been involved in Charter 88 and the democracy movement. Tell us, you know. So then, I, I mean, you
1: know, in 1997, there was a Labour government, everybody got excited, but uh, Charter 88 was trying to create the context for real, um democratic revolution, and, and as um, Anthony Barnett was saying a, a week or so ago, you know, we got like two bits of it and the rest of it got junked. So decentralization, uh, devolution of power to Wales and Scotland was really important, but but we needed the whole democratic revolution to happen at once and it didn't, and then the Labour government became timorous and wouldn't do anything that could be done with that huge majority, somehow always afraid of, of, of losing, such that it wouldn't move. So you and I and lots of other people were very frustrated. So we made that statement, the Compass Statement, um, which was 2003, I yeah. think, where we sort of said, we, we want better than this, it could be better than this, um, and tried to lay out what a what a good society would be like. And looking back at it, actually, the things that we're saying now are very close to the things we were saying then the language has changed but that idea of a good society in which every equality is important because it's how you thrive not instead of thriving um that that was an important moment and and compass came for that there was also the magazine the, the journal renewal which i think bridged the gap for me paul thompson you i were involved in in that that's been a really important journal over over those years too and it's still thriving
0: <laughs> um, it's, it's still there jack i don't know if you could put in the chat box both so if, if you could find a link to the original compass statement that we published um because it does kind of stand the test of time and also to um to renewal as well on which from the lawrence and wishart site or wherever they are because that's still doing things which is um which is great and then just run us through the you know the the, the sort of you know the, the years of, of compass in your engagement you know what you know how you see it how we've developed well
1: The big—I mean, we started off inside the Labour Party. We started off as another incarnation, didn't we, of the soft left in the Labour Party? But we started to have conversations with the Greens and the Liberal Democrats and the Scottish Nationalist Party and Plaid Cymru and loads of people who weren't involved in politics at all, and thought, "Hang on a minute, we agree with all these people. We agree with them a lot more sometimes than we agree with some of our comrades in the Labour Party." And and it took a big shift. I can remember how big a day it was when we did decide to stop being a Labour Party organisation and become something that brought together people from left of centre political movements and tried to create a movement for social democracy that went beyond a particular political party. There are still people who don't agree with it now. I think it was a brilliant move. I think our colleagues from the Greens and from the Liberal Democrats and the other political parties, as well as the people from No Party, have really enhanced Compass and its thinking. Um, so that was a major shift, I think. and And I still think the Progressive Alliance is a really important element of Compass's work, and I still believe that. If we could bring together the left of centre political parties through networking, through conversations, through working together to create a sort of settled consensus about how change should be done and what it is that we need to do together, we would transform party politics. And um, that's, that's still part of my aim.
0: Yeah, and it's and it's definitely part of our aim as well. Um, the world's moved on, you know, quite a lot since um, even since we started 17 years ago. Um, you know, climate is now you know there. We've obviously got Brexit. We've now got pandemics. We've got you know this ability to talk um, amongst our, amongst each other and to each other across you know geographies and space and you know whatever else. I mean. But formal politics and the Labour Party itself feels quite stuck in a, you know, in an old world. I mean, is it, you know, is it the, the you know, is it a, the primary big tent to 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 do change in the 21st century? And how are we now approaching that question of shifting, you know, the paradigm in the 21st century?
1: So for me, and I guess you know, for probably most of us in this call climate change and the destruction of the planet is the big most important the the only most important issue that we have to work on it it i I was saying to a friend of mine the other day you know that you know for the humans can sort themselves out later but for the insects and the animals this is their last chance you know we've got to but but i also think the way, if we were able to tackle climate change, it would teach us how to tackle everything else. It would teach us all the things that we need to know in order to be able to solve the other problems that feel insoluble. So for me that's the big thing and whatever it takes, I, you know, and whatever the alliances are, whoever it needs to be, however we need to do it, I think that's, I think that's really important. But also because and covid19 comes to this into this too i think it links to coming back to to life being meaningful instead of just something you struggle through you know in order to earn enough money not to starve there's something about a meaningful life being purposeful and having deep connections to our surroundings our planet our animals our food it's about alliance it's about fellowship and those things have sort of been degraded for such a long time that the struggle for a different way of thinking about the planet is also a different way of thinking about ourselves and each other and those things come together and you're right the last place where you find any of that is in Westminster, but they are going to have to learn too. Part of the project is going to have to be to help them. It, uh, my sense about where we are now is that the work is not to persuade, we don't, it's not that we have to persuade the majority of people that the current system is unfair and unequal and brittle and unsafe and unpleasant. The work is to convince people that there's an alternative it seems to me the biggest failure of the of, of the 20th century was was the failure of the socialist experiments and the creation of controlling state systems which meant that for millions of working people any sort of capitalism was better how on earth did that terrible thing happen and for most ordinary people that i meet that fear of a totalitarian socialism is still there so we have to create an old I mean, what's so sad is that in the uk and as in lots of other countries there was in the 19th century a huge alternative there were cooperative associations there was women's cooperative goods though there, there were A network of working class led organisations able to intervene in the economy, able to manufacture, able to do retail and the sort of state led model of socialism sort of mowed it all down. Um, And then we watched what happened in in Eastern Europe and, and and in other countries. So I think the work is to make an alternative that we want to live in.
0: And I think we're coming out of that century of the centre, that century of the command and control. And I think technology is a big part in that. And I think you're absolutely right that our view of the good society, a life of meaning, of purpose, of creativity, of love and whatever is essential. But what you've been concentrating on, um, and I want you to talk about in particular the Open Tribe book, is, is not just the what, but the how because that's central to our politics. Tell us a bit about the Open Tribe book. And again, Jack, if we could find a link to the Open Tribe book, which is on the Lawrence and richard site, so people can access that. Tell us a bit about that book, because it's been essential to our thinking
1: so open tribe came from a compass event in which we were slagging off tribalism and there was a guy in the audience who said hang on a minute tribalism is what gets us up at six o'clock in the morning to go and leaflet an entire block of flats in the winter you know it's it's solidarity it's what keeps us going we had a really rich conversation about that and about the value of solidarity and it it felt like there needed to be a way of Balancing the the sense of belonging and solidarity and identity that comes from tribalism, with the equivalent human endeavour to explore and adventure and find out and learn and be curious, and and I I didn't know how to do that, so I thought, well, if I don't know how to do this, then I need to pursue an inquiry, don't I? I need to be curious. So I chose not at random, but but. 20 people from different walks of life politicians community activists from different countries different backgrounds and just had a conversation with them and we put some up on the compass website at the time about how you might get this balance to work what 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 is it that we would do and i learned a huge amount in that endeavor it reinforced my view that inquiry is a form of politics that is that is capable of making change. Um, a number of those people have gone on to do fantastic things in the meantime, I thought they probably would. Um, I, I learned that identity and belonging don't need to be sacrificed in order to be open and curious and welcoming. That there's a, an important political process of becoming where our point of arrival is different from our point of departure but they still both continue to exist and we tend to feel the need to, to choose all the time. Um, what it takes and what I gained from those interviews and, and hopefully Compass has always put into practice is real mutual reciprocal respect and a dialogic conversation in which we don't have to agree but we learn a huge amount about each other and about ourselves because of the nature of the conversation and I still think that that that's how change happens and, and we need a politics and institutions that don't fix us into a single opinion and identity but allow that becoming to be part of the way we live our lives. There was a a lot I learned about the state. Hilary Cotton was one of the people I interviewed and I know she's a Compass uh, 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 friend as well. And, And there's a chapter in there called Can the State Love? And I've always, you know, I've always been proud of that title because you know a lot of what has happened to the way we run the nhs and social care and unemployment benefit and a whole load of public services has meant that they create a sort of chilling clinical scary relationship between state officials however well meaning and and people who turn to the state for help and i and that and could you create a role for the state which would promote Dignity and respect and openness and love and and that's what sent me on the route to writing, Garden Mind, I guess, because well, it takes it on a stage.
0: It does, it does. Let let let's come on to that. And just to um, people on the call, I'll ask a couple more questions. Then it's over to you. So start loading any questions you've got into the chat thing. If you don't, I'm more than happy to keep asking Sue questions all night because this is this is just, just just brilliant. And you just remind me of one of those eternal kind of dilemmas for us: is that question of How do the nice people win? Because we're, you know, in in the sort of hippie, tree-hugging kind of way that you've just described, you know, we want to embrace people, we want to embrace ideas, we want to know what they think, we want to talk to them, we want to sit down, we don't want to destroy them, you know, we don't want to beat them, we want to learn from them and with them. I mean, are we going to win? Or is it, you know, in, in Paul Thompson, who you cited earlier, famously said, we might be the soft left, but we're not that soft you know how do we win power um you know by being nice are we going to win too or are we just going to have nice conversations
1: well that has always been you know uh, one of the key questions isn't it you know if if the bad guys lie and cheat and use weapons and the good guys don't how come you know they'll always win won't they um and i struggle with this i think in the end um, it in the end you know what leninism taught us is if you use the weapons of the bad guys you become the bad guys so it's no use you can't do it that way the answer has to be that there have to be a lot more of us than there are of them there has to just be millions you know millions of people can create uh, democratic revolutions we've seen it we've seen it happen in eastern europe you know states cannot dominate against the will of the people what I think the the work has to go into creating a settled will of the people, and that will be enough if it's um, resilient and strong and self supportive um, what won't be enough is passing a piece of legislation you know and hoping for the best you know we need to change the way we all think in order for there to be enough of us to hold fast to get it to happen but you know, yeah, that, that, there aren't any other ways.
0: <laughs> um, that sounds like a good way. So take us into into Garden Mind. This is a, obviously everything's a development of everything. And this is a development of Open Tribe and it's a development of 45 degrees. But you've applied your own experiences of becoming a gardener over the last 20 years or something and applied that to your practice of, 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 of public service change. Took us through Garden Mind.
1: Well, it... it I mean, it began because I, like lots of other people, I guess, started reading uh, about alternative philosophies and ancient ways of thinking and indigenous people's philosophies that connect us differently to the planet and the animals and plants and stuff around us. And I was thinking, well, in Britain, we haven't got rainforest and we haven't got tundra. But what we have got, the experience that connects and resonates for us is is gardens, gardening. And I suppose I'm always looking for a narrative, a way of creating a description of something that will resonate because most political language just switches people off and sounds meaningless. Um, So the phrase from machine mind to garden mind felt like something that might hold a bit of heft. Um, And in the paper, I trace how Nineteenth century capitalism fell in love with the machine. Um, and you know, mass production treated human beings as moving parts in a machine. And that machine thinking started to crush everything else of value in our lives. I mean, you read Dickens, you know, the grad grinds of, of, of the 1850s and the 1860s, and the way that the humanity of people's lives was being crushed into those terrible working conditions um, in the 19th century and the machines got slightly more civilized but by the 20th century that had sort of dominated everyone's thinking and when we created the welfare state it was created at a time of mass industrial production and the the idea of the factory got carried into the idea of the benefit system the idea of the hospital the idea of the prison the idea of the lunatic asylum you know those that machine thinking started to shape the way that we created all our institutions um and then you know post thatcher the sort of corporate mentality the sort of the the age of the management consultant started to bring in efficiency into public services. You get time and motion studies, you get the hunt for efficiency, you get performance management. And all of that is sort of reducing the human and inserting the machine. And I mean, universal credit for me is like the ultimate final terrible incarnation of of the computer says no. So what we've done is created a governance system which is machine-minded, and it centralises power, it centralises control, and it specialises so that everything is very, very complicated. And what you'd see with the COVID-19 pandemic is just that system is so brittle when faced with something extraordinary that we don't know how to do with. I mean, you know, the horror of concentrating power right at the centre where they are the very people who don't know what to do. You know, the people who do know what to do are left out of the decision-making. So garden mind for me is, is just, it's, it's a metaphor. It's a way of thinking, but it's just a way of thinking how, how do organisms respond as opposed to how do machines respond? Um, And organisms respond with, with, with redundancy. You know, they, 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 throw out lots and lots of lots of different ways of doing things they they it's a trial and error error sort of world in which natural life finds its own way through through experimenting Um, and distributed power rather than centralized power would give us a possibility of creating a world of experiment rather than a world of a single top-down blueprint designed like a like a car manual um so i suppose if you extend that metaphor you know what what gardeners do is that they watch and they observe and they learn about the conditions they're trying to work within they watch what the plants do and find the animals that automatically insects that automatically help to create an equilibrium and they create a soil that is rich enough to allow things to grow rather than trying to fix each individual plant and that if you extend that sort of metaphor you start to see the state as tending to 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 society rather than controlling it and watching and learning and protecting the things that need extra help and creating you know for me a rich soil is things like basic income and permanent education and uh, opportunities uh, to thrive. What, what would our equivalent of a rich soil that enabled all citizens in, in all circumstances to be able to, to cope and thrive? And coming back to the, you know, how do the, you know, I mean, it is a metaphor, so, you know, you can extend this too far. you know gardeners do have to stop thuggish weeds and you do have to intervene to stop you know greed taking over so it isn't simply softness it's also resolute action when 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 the balance is imperiled but it's to prevent imbalance rather than than for any other reason and it moves you towards a long-term future of equilibrium rather than just trying to fix the problem by growing our way out of it and I don't know what equilibrium will be like and I can see that for lots of people that feels scary but I think that's where we need to go and that's how gardens are you know they balance you know things uh, have an upside and a downside and they go in cycles and we we need to start to learn to think like that
0: and the, the big picture for me out of that before we hand over to Grace and the members is that you know, the connection between the climate crisis and that method of change is so obviously interlinked, aren't they? We're talking about an ecosystem way of making change happen within an ecosystem that we're destroying because of our actions. And so therefore, if we think and behave like gardeners, have we got a better chance of you know, saving the planet or, or not destroying the planet? Well, I
1: think, I mean, two things. One is... Organisms are clearly much cleverer than machines. So, you know, the idea that you simply make a machine to fix it as opposed to learning how organisms adapt and change. And and modern science is, you know, eco science is teaching us all sorts of really interesting things that happen in the natural world that we didn't, you know, we thought that you could just, you know, take soil and pour chemicals into it and kill off the bad things and raise the good things and it'd be fine. And it turns out we've destroyed the soil because we didn't know what was in there. We didn't understand it. We were too stupid to know that all these little balancing systems were holding it all together. And now we're going to have to back off and let it recreate itself. So So let's apply that thinking to everything we do, you know, governments can't do things by simply announcing a programme and chucking in a few initiatives in, but if Local government, regional government, local communities have got space to move and resources to act, and they are experimenting, then the small resources of the centre can, you know, can, can help and tend and change it. But so for me, the single big thing that would make the biggest change would be to decentralize power and resource. Um, it wouldn't all go right, but it couldn't go any worse. <laughs>
2: Hello, this is Grace from the Compass Office, interrupting for a moment. I'm lucky enough to come from a large and politically diverse family. We really did have the full political spectrum represented over Christmas dinner, but in spite of our differences, we still actually like each other. Um, I've always known, because of this, that politics should be more about listening and learning from the people we disagree with than shouting at them and fighting with them. And of course, I've definitely known for a long time that it really is bloody complicated. So I was so happy that when one day I discovered Compass quite by accident, through their brilliant work on the Progressive Alliance in the 2017 general election. Since then, it's been absolute pleasure to once again be part of a political family where talking to people in different political parties, admitting that you alone don't have all the answers, is not just okay, but actively encouraged. So if you'd like to find out more about Compass, you can visit compassonline.org.uk. And now back to the conversation.
0: Let's hand over to Grace and start getting some people, um, other people into the the rich diversity of this conversation. Thanks, Grace. Um,
2: All right, Uh, Alison Hilton, um, you're up first. Thank you, that was really, really interesting. Um, I just wondered, um, you talked, Sue, about having millions of the good guys if you like do you have a view on uh, how that how that millions of people is grown how we get to that point
1: particularly engaging with people beyond the party political machines good question um i think we have to stop waiting for government to do it i think we have to do it and i think that my very good friend, Myron Rogers, has this phrase, "You know, the way that you get to the future shapes the future. So I think the way we get to where we want to be is to do it and have it be like that and then connect it all up together. So for me, local experiments, neighborhood experiments, global experiments, trying things, mutual aid groups, community organizations, black lives matter people doing things for themselves brilliant local authorities connecting to their communities in new ways all of these things are the thing that will make things different and people's experience of being part of those movements and those moments enables them to learn and change and we have far greater capacity as individuals as citizens and we give ourselves credit for as we always find out when we try and organize something and just building our confidence and our courage that we can make things we can you know i am i mean i was a historian at one point and in the late 19th century the network of cooperative societies covered almost the entire country covering retail funeral parlors uh manufacturing Uh, providing and and that 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 was the state didn't do welfare until you know virtually until after the second world war welfare was done by the people for the people and we've forgotten that we could do it again that's how we make the millions we do it
2: brilliant um okay next question coming in from
1: kieran so my question picks up on what you were when you started about the viable alternatives people however bad the present is people seem to think that lefties will make it worse yeah Uh, that would be i mean even at the moment i think however bad i think things are i think the Tories are ahead on economic competence there is something about you know progressive organic people you can sort of see people sitting watching the telly thinking you might let them run a nursery but not the international economy um and I don't necessarily agree with it, but how do we cut through that? That whole thing about actually we could run the country, we could run the international
0: system. and There's this lack of belief, this kind of thinking is taken seriously by people etc.
1: Yeah, no I agree. Um, Three thoughts I suppose, I don't know the answer. Um, One is we have run the country, (laughs) you know, people on the left have run the country lots of times. secondly what does running the country consist of so you know we run people on the left run local government people on the center left run scotland people you know they run bits of wales they run neighborhoods you 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 run things so we are already running the country in a way it's just that what we don't run is the economy i guess is the question so i think we're trusted I think people on the left are trusted to do everything except run the economy. I do think we have not bottomed out as a soft left, if soft still applies as a you know what's the gardening of governance. So it's a green as a, I don't know, um, as a weedy left. Um, we haven't bottomed out our approach to capitalism, and actually that's a bit tricky because some of us think. That we tame capitalism. Some of them think we can redesign it so it's different. Some people want to get rid of it and and I suspect that that's the that's the really hard conversation that we're avoiding Is what do we do about capitalism, because I do think people think probably I think state run economies don't go well. So what's the alternative to a state run economy and to capitalism. And what does that look like? And we haven't done that work properly. Um, And I suppose the final thought is that the experiments that are underway both here and in other countries demonstrate a different and better way of doing things. It's just that each one is sort of in its own little bubble. And if we could connect them all together and demonstrate how they fit together, then we begin to have a model. But at the moment, we've just got bits. And I do think part of Compass's work is to fit all the bits together and say, look, if you connect everything together like this, it's a thing that works. And this is how it might work. And and that's work. We haven't done that work. We haven't done that thinking work, but it's available for us to do it. Could we have different care for the elderly and different health systems and different uh, sorts of working lives and different childcare and, you know, all the things we know are working in different experiments. What would it look like if it all fitted together i think that's quite exciting okay next
2: question then from alex cooper
0: i hear your aversion to uh, a centralized uh, systemic approach to politics and uh, you're more people-centered organic uh, i think but nevertheless do you think there is a place for technology in moving forward to engage people in decision making more and um, we've got endless Discussion platforms where you know nothing's ever decided, but could we use technology to uh, in, involve people more in 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 the process of democracy? I know that um, Tom Watson and John Curtis have alluded to wanting something like that in the past, and I just wonder whether that's um, come into your thinking at all.
1: Yes, I mean I'm a technophobe. I have to admit, you know, I like living in the 18th century, but um, I I do believe that technology has the possibility to be used both for good and and for not good, depending on how we we grab it. Um, I mean, this sort of call wouldn't have been possible without technology. And this is how we are learning to talk to each other. And we're not going to all, you know, we can't all get on trains and go to a meeting for an hour, but we can do this. So I think that technology is giving us all sorts of new models of ways of doing things. You know i've I'm, i live i live in a country lane and our lane's got a whatsapp group and the whatsapp group runs the lane you know two days ago sheep a, a dog got into the into the field with the sheep next door and the whatsapp group was able to track the dog find the dog catch the dog call the farmer and, and get it sorted well that's you know you couldn't have done that any other way so um I, I mean, I, I think technology has got to be a crucial part of this. It's just, you know, don't come to me for the ideas because I'm hopeless.
2: All right. Thank you, Sue. Next up, we have Mary, who says she has a, pop, a question which might be unpopular. So.
1: All right. Hi. Well, my unpopular view is I'm not interested in climate change. Um, I think lots of charities and organisations deal with that. But my interest is in man's inhumanity to man. And I don't see how political organisations, if they concentrate on the climate, are going to help every man in his day-to-day life. Uh, earning money, paying his rent, too high electricity, that might be linked to the climate, I must admit. And, and so I, I rather, my heart rather sinks when you say the main thing you are interested in now is in climate change. Well, so, so how would we connect these two things together? I mean, I guess for me, climate change is... Are also about a better life and a good society they're not separate they're not different so what is it that we would do to live together more successfully doing less damage and having more of a sense of purpose I mean I think see for me the idea of being a guardian of the planet and not a destroyer of it is is about humans and how we feel about ourselves and how we feel about each other. Um, and yes, we are going to have to create technologies that try and deal with, with fuel poverty and some of the, you know, so in order, once you, once you say let's, we can't grow our way out of trouble, then you start to say, then you start to have to focus on the fact that what we've got now is wildly unequal. You know, so this thing that we've been following for the last 50 years, which is that, you know, poor people haven't got enough. So let's just grow everything. And then rich people get twice as much more out of what we grow. And a few people get a little bit extra. If you start to say, well, no, we've probably got, you know, Kate Rollwood's got this brilliant donut diagram where she sort of says there's a sort of inner there's an inner limit which is what everybody needs to survive and live a decent enjoyable life and there's an outer limit which is what the planet can handle and we have to work within those two extremes we can't simply bust through what the planet can handle then you have to face the fact that what there is is wildly unequally distributed and that's intolerable and then you have to tackle that problem but you have to tackle it differently if you see it like that than simply saying, well, we'll just grow our way out of trouble and we'll just, you know, allow capitalism to accumulate more and more and more of what there is, but we'll have a bit more for everybody. It'll have to be done differently. And, and, I, and that is a huge challenge. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm not saying that I know how to behave well in terms of the planet yet. And I'm not saying I do, um, but unless we change our priorities, I, you know, I really fear for what life would be like for our children and our grandchildren. Okay. Um,
2: right. Next question then from Colin Miller.
0: Hi, Sue. Good to see you. Um, we've often talked about uh, the stuff about creating a deeper democracy, a more organic, participative democracy. But I think it's always very abstract, those ideas. And I'm just curious to know um, how you would see a deeper, more participative and deliberative democracy functioning in practice. That's a tough question, I know. But I don't think that's the sort of stuff we we need to talk about that kind of vision a lot more, I think.
1: Yes, yes. And I remember Jeremy Gilbert saying you know, that, you know, in his in, in his good society we spend most of our lives in meetings and thinking, oh shit, do we have to? Um, there's a sort of sense in which, you know, that's one of the things that people fear, isn't it? Is that, you know, the left will make them spend their lives in meetings. Um, and I I don't I don't think that's going to work. I don't think that's going to... We don't want to spend our lives in meetings. Um, So partly that's because the meetings are so ghastly. So, you know, we could make meetings more entertaining, but I still don't think that's how we make democracy work. I think... So partly I think we don't want to sit in meetings making abstract decisions. We want to be able to do what we want to be able to do. So. I think a lot of self-organising for me is about doing the work that makes the world better, not sitting talking about it for someone else to do it. So I, 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 for me, I'm much more interested in community, in the state, local and national, putting its resource behind communities self-organising and doing the stuff that they want to do, than I am running lots and lots of democratic process in which we all tell the state. How they should you know i think we should have less stuff that is run through the democratic process and implemented by the state and more stuff that is us running our own lives collaboratively with state resource and help to help us so it it, it moves democracy away from just being decision making about what someone else should do into taking control of the action and the activity now that has the same you know god i've got to spend my whole life you know running football clubs and, and organizing things but if people choose the things that they enjoy to be involved in running it may be that 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 is a pleasurable experience and then i, I think we need to change how how democracy works i think if democracy were as an, were an inquiry was a learning process it ought to be fun it ought to be exciting if democracy was bringing together people with different views in a way that wasn't hostile and wasn't aggressive but was penetrating and in you know exploring hard that learning process ought to be part of how we as humans grow but we don't do that we've Designed a way of doing democracy which is tedious and boring and pointless and point scoring. Uh, and the media have got a lot to answer for, but so have the political parties and the way we do politics. So, you know, and then the the bit I don't know how to deal with is how to stop angry people, because I think people are allowed to be angry. It's 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 reasonable to be angry, but how do we stop that anger getting in the way of a proper inquiry what would what would that be like how would we make it okay for people to express their feelings but then to be able to be part of something deeper and more meaningful you know so we're beckley steps but we do it in compass so if we can do it in compass i don't see why we can't do it everywhere else we just have to think of how okay
2: thank you sue um okay moving on to sally Thorpe had a question
1: Obviously, we've got a very right-wing government and I just wonder where you you think we can go with this right-wing government. Is there any possibility of having a conversation with them so we could get some of these wonderful ideas going? Can we get a new consensus? At the moment it feels like it's going away from us. I'd like your views please. Yeah no I agree it's tough thinking about how we might work with the current <laughs> government um so i think there's wales to work with there's scotland to work with there's i don't know possibly even northern ireland to work with there's local government to work with there's community organizations to work with there's charities to work with there's public sector organizations to work with there's the people, you know so there's lots of places where there is some power to work with The trickiest bit is going to be Westminster and I, you know, that's where I think we are a bit dependent on MPs of all political parties learning how to network and talk to each other in order to construct majorities that might not be the expected ones, but might do something strange and helpful and good. Um, I think we have to help Labour politicians explore how things could be different, because I think that their lives are pretty, you know, shuttered in and they find it hard to imagine it being different to how it is. And so they get, you know, very sort of narrowly focused. I think we need to do a lot of work to show them what it's like on the ground when things are different and show them the experiments in Buckingham, Dagenham and and Wigan and the places where things are being done differently. Um, I, it's no point you know and i said there's, there's a thing there's a buddhist thing where you have to send loving kindness to your to someone that, that that you that you hate or you think is dreadful and um you know the idea of sending loving kindness to boris johnson and Derek, dominic cummings is is a struggle isn't it um uh, but there may be people on the fringes good you know people who are well-meaning people um that the political groupings can work with
2: okay thank you sue um, so last question i think we'll have time for should hopefully be slightly more straightforward one Ginny smith it's, yes it is a fairly
1: straightforward one um, and this has been brilliant and very inspirational but i'm wondering about our voting system electoral system and isn't the only way that our politics really can change from embedded tribalism to a much more open
2: dialogue um, is by changing our first-past-the-post voting system.
1: Yes, of course. I mean, I was very active in Charter 88 and that was one of the key demands, Um, and uh, I am a very strong supporter of PR, you're absolutely right. The problem is not saying that, because of course that's right, but getting it because the British electorate have not felt that that is a really important thing to change. So, My sense is probably goes the other way around. If we get a strong progressive majority for a better society and we can begin to describe what that would be like and we can show that you need PR to get it, then we might be able to shift the politicians. Why the Labour Party thinks that first past the post serves it, I have no idea given the maths. But um that's an argument we have to keep on having. But you're absolutely right, Jenny. Let's keep struggling for it.
0: Okay, thank you, Grace, and thank you for everyone for for some great questions. I kind of wanted to intervene in so many uh so many points. <laughs> You'd have had
1: better answers. <laughs> no, I would have
0: had different answers soon. And I kind of I want a chapter in a book by you about, you know, can we love a Tory? You know, and I think you know I, I go back to that kind of point where you know the conservatives kind of help bring about the post-war settlement and if we're going to have a post-covid post-climate settlement we're going to clearly have to speak to a, a lot of people that we don't normally speak to. Oh yes
1: Tories and this government are not the same thing necessarily. I
0: agree I agree I agree um so anyway we'll we'll finish where we always finish our podcasts I want you to sort of to rattle around um your brain and your experiences in your life about where you find inspiration from? Where do you find hope from? What keeps you going uh, to think, to be active, and to try and build this good society? Tell us. Tell us where hope comes from for zoo
1: Well, when I'm not doing this, I work as a coach and a facilitator and a team coach in local government and amongst um, community organisations and with the NHS. Um, although COVID 19s put a stop to most of that. Um, so I get my hope from the people that I meet who are on the ground, who are doing it. You know, there's, and I bet not name names, but there's a brilliant woman um, in Islington who was given, works for the council, was given a neighborhood project to run. And she was bringing together st- GPs and nurses and social workers and housing officers and people from all sorts of different organizations and helping them create the space to come up with their own solutions and then going into battle to get the high ups to let them implement their solutions. And every time it was all impossible, she'd you know, we'd have a chat and she'd go back out again and have another go. And so there are people all over, local government, in the community, who know how to do this stuff you know and who are really creative and energized and millions probably hundreds of thousands anyway and i just think you know we need to just sort of you know get the synaptic things to link them together so that's i think i just get my hope when i see see in action when we talked to barking and dagenham not very long ago we were listening to how they were changing the way they thought and the way they acted as a council I, th- I was in tears i thought it was brilliant that's where i get my hope from that and the garden of course because my beetroots are going brilliantly
0: so good to uh, so good to hear i can't i don't like beetroots but uh, <laughs> i i wish you well i wish you well with them and um, that was a fantastic conversation a real kind of rattle around the history and the genesis and the origins of, of uh, origins of, of compass, but also you know our thinking and you've been a, you 've been know a huge part of our thinking. so thank you very much for all of that work over uh, the decades and for coming on tonight and being part part of the, the conversation again it's been a really uh, uh, thrilling kind of ride for for an hour. Thank you for everyone for being part of it and making it possible. Thank you for the questions, thank you, grace and jack uh, for, for supporting this. Um, we're back next week. Um, uh, uh, they say never meet your heroes. Um, and I've kind of partly met him before. Peter Tatchell, the uh, Green Party uh, uh, activist and human rights campaigner who I have so much admiration for. Um, Peter will take us for a whistle tour uh, stop tour around his life and his politics and what he's hoping for. So that will be another treat that I'm looking forward to next week. Um, Until then, thank you again, Sue. Thank you, all of you. Keep safe, keep well. And as Sue has been saying, keep hopeful. Take care. So, if you like what you've heard today and want to be part of a much more equal, democratic and sustainable future, a good society, then visit us at compassonline.org.uk forward slash podcast and you'll be able to join us live on future calls just like this one you can tweet me at Neil n-e-a-l underscore compass or compass at compass office and if you've enjoyed this week's episode please give us a rating it will help us reach more listeners in the future and it's only fair that they know it's bloody complicated too